ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, well, actually, Norman, why don't you just tell me what you've got coming up? Well, let's work it out. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Um, <laughs> we've got a really good story on how to get GPs talking about weight with their patients. They're terrified to these days about weight shaming and so on and stigma. How can they do that better? And also a report from the Long COVID conference in Melbourne last week. Mm, and well, for me, I'm going to be following up on a story that was pretty hard to miss over the past week. The woman who had an eight centimetre worm in her brain. I'm going to be looking into what it's like to have an infection like that. Spoiler alert, it's awful. But also about a certain type of parasitic worm that researchers are giving to people on purpose because they might have health benefits. Okay, so don't eat your bun or your meal (laughs) while you're listening to this show. Yeah, maybe not this week. But let's get into it and let's start with long COVID. Yeah, on Friday in Melbourne, they held what was probably Australia's first conference solely devoted to long COVID as defined by persisting symptoms three months after an acute COVID infection. The people in the room included basic researchers, clinicians and people living with long COVID, some of whom were really disabled by it. It was sponsored by the Victorian Agency for Health Information and the Department of Health in Victoria, who also funded a large survey of people known to have had COVID to see what proportion had developed long COVID, who they are and what they were experiencing. Professor David Waters chaired the committee which oversaw the research. The average was 14%, but the rate of long COVID has gone down as the variants have changed and as vaccination has come in. And I think near the beginning of the pandemic, you were getting one in four people with persistent symptoms. That's correct. The earlier variants and the unvaccinated population, long COVID was, was more frequent. And it's gone down to closer now to about one in 10 or just under. And the symptoms that people are finding? The common symptoms are feeling fatigued, brain fog and feeling physically weak. But other people have breathing difficulties or they have fast heartbeats. And a lot of people are describing speech and language difficulties or memory impairment. And what about male, female and pre-existing conditions? Similar to other surveys, there is a 60-40% female to male Ratio. And from the survey, it's certainly not a condition of the elderly. 40% of people were between 40 and 59. That's correct. And these are the people who have often got family responsibilities as well as economic responsibilities. And so it has a big impact on their lives. And the other piece of data that interested me was the rate of being in hospital. 8% had been treated in hospital. So this was not a condition of severe COVID. Again, many of the studies show that if you have been hospitalised and if you've been in ICU, you are more likely to get long COVID. But having said that, the vast majority of people who get COVID are not hospitalised. And so the burden of disease for long COVID is actually in those who haven't been hospitalised. Did you measure how disabling the long COVID was? There's a significant loss of quality of life for a number of long COVID sufferers. There are people who've had to give up their job and... There are people who cannot exercise to the same level or do the same things again, even if they're still functioning in society, but may not be able to do the same job or do the same job to the same effect. So for people who plan health services, what's the implication? The disease burden is out there 
and needs to be primarily managed by general practitioners, but not just by general practitioners. I think there's a lot of treatments that are effective in terms of rehabilitation that are run through allied health. And those people managing the disease in primary care would like some backup from specialist services when people have particularly difficult symptoms to manage. It's a multidisciplinary disease and it needs a multidisciplinary team approach. David Waters is Professor of Surgery at Deakin University and chairs the Victorian Post-Acute COVID Sequelae Research Group. Given that brain effects dominate the long COVID symptom pattern, it's important to know what's going on in the nervous system. But since it's hard to experiment on humans, researchers have developed what are called preclinical or animal models of COVID infection. One such researcher is Associate Professor Victoria Lawson of the Doherty Institute, one of whose team's first tasks was to see if the virus can evade the brain's formidable defences and get inside. Yes, just because it can doesn't mean it does. And yeah, what we have seen is that in a a wild-type mouse that a respiratory infection can lead to virus getting into the brain of those animals. Through the nose or where? We don't know that $60 million question yet, but we're certainly very keen to find that out because obviously that will help us understand the pathogenesis, the way that the disease occurs. And you're working on a model of mild disease? Yes, because the majority of people have had a mild disease. So what do you see in the brain? We see little pockets of virus and then we see astrocytes with microglia reacting to infection. So you've got persistent virus in the brain, so we know the virus is there. Yep. You know that you're getting activation, which means that these immune cells in the brain and the supportive cells are activated, meaning that they've noticed something's going on. Do you get invasion of the nerve cells themselves? We don't know that yet. If you summarise the existing knowledge about brain effects, the neurological effects of this at that cellular level, what would you say is is a sum total of knowledge? I would say we're just scratching the surface and I guess there's different mechanisms that are probably in play, but what we're looking at at the moment is neuroinflammation in response to either peripheral viral infection or virus in the brain. And what about brain degeneration? I mean, this is not something that people with long COVID are going to welcome talking about, but In Parkinson's disease, for example, you do see build-up of this side effect, if you like, of the damage which is called the tau protein. Are you seeing tau in brains of people with long COVID? There's a smattering of papers that talk about these, I guess, neurodegenerative proteins being found in the brains of patients with disease. And there's certainly some, again, some preclinical models that look at tau and alpha-synuclein. And so... That's the other protein that's in the brains of people with Parkinson's disease. Absolutely. The beauty of our model is it's a mild infection, the mice survive, and we can then age the mice and see whether or not we see any of these degenerative proteins appearing. And that's certainly something we're very interested in. And the other thing we can do is that you could take the model of a mouse that is susceptible to get Parkinson's disease. You could infect it with virus and then see if it accelerates the disease. Is there anything you're seeing in the brain, even in mouse models, that could give a clue to a treatment? For example, you're seeing inflammation. Yes, if it is something like neuroinflammation, then the hope would be able to, at least in the preclinical model, treat those animals with some type of anti-inflammatory that might moderate that effect. And that is the beauty of the preclinical model is that we can make observations and then directly trial it out in the animals. Associate Professor Victoria Lawson of the Doherty Institute and the University of Melbourne. And this is The Health Report. So Norman, we talk a lot on this show about diseases, viruses, of course, non-communicable diseases like diabetes, cancer. We talk about injuries, but we don't spend enough time, in my opinion, talking about parasitic worms. Worms. Yeah. Look, it's a huge gap, a huge gap. (laughs) 
Well, we're rectifying it uh, this week because, of course, there was that story that came out last week about a woman with a roundworm in her brain. Uh, there's more to it than just this one case, but if you missed that story, it was about a woman from the Canberra area who's thought to have the first human case of a type of roundworm common in carpet pythons. Yes, snakes get worms too. But in this case, it found its way into a human and infected her brain. And the surgeons got a surprise when they went in because they weren't expecting it. Yeah, they sure did. Our colleague Nick Kilvert talked to the surgeon, Dr Hari Priyabandi from Canberra Hospital. Then when I put my tumour holding forceps, which is just basically like tweezers, into pick it up, instead of normally I normally pick out some sort of ball of tumour, this time I picked out something like a long linear object that was like a wiggly linear object, so a squiggly line. And my registrar, my trainee doctor thought, is that a blood vessel? I said, no, the blood vessels aren't here. My thought was, is it some sort of wire? That was my immediate thought, but then I realised it was moving. I was like, oh, get it out of my hands. We all felt some wave of nausea and put the thing into a pot where it rapidly was wiggling and still trying to escape the pot. That wiggling linear object was a roundworm, a Fidoscaris robertsi, which is usually found in carpet pythons and small mammals. They reckon the woman picked it up while foraging for warrigal greens. So that's last week's story, but you're saying you've got even more worm news for us. Yeah, I will admit, stories like this, even though they're really unsettling, they have a kind of morbid fascination for me. But the reality of an infection like this is an awful ordeal. Like I said, the woman in that particular case study is the first person to have been confirmed with that particular type of worm. But Queensland woman Lois Randall had a very similar infection last year that had her medical team scrambling for answers and her family wondering whether she would survive. One night I woke up and my legs ached from my hips down to my ankles, both legs. They were so painful. I couldn't rest. I couldn't lie down. I do remember at the hospital then the pain moving to more in my torso and it was just terribly, uh, I believe it was very, very unbearable. There was one night I was screaming in pain. Lois was admitted to hospital where she stayed for more than a month. For weeks, her treating team tried to figure out what was making her so sick, while her husband, Colin, had to watch her deteriorate. Because she'd reached the point where she couldn't walk anymore. It was really quite skeletal and was unable to really even move. Yeah, look, it's the most horrible experience you can imagine, really, because you feel very helpless. Now, I've already hinted at what was causing Lois's awful symptoms, but at the time, she was a real mystery case for her doctors. Leading the charge was Alex Chowdhury, an infectious diseases physician at the Prince Charles Hospital, who had to go through a painstaking process of trial and error. You're going to look at pretest probability, epidemiology, where had they been, what are they at risk of? In Lois's case, her syndrome could be best described as meningoreticulitis, so some signs of meningitis or meningeal inflammation and dreadful pain from the nerve roots, radiculitis. And they travelled through the United States through Lyme endemic regions and did point out a skin lesion that to me looked like it would be consistent with a tick bite. It was a papule. And uh, Lyme disease does have this unusual manifestation of radiculitis. And so my first diagnosis was probably that. We'd ruled out the common things first, which is what we do in medicine. But then after, um, I think it was 10 days after we started the treatment without any benefit, we went back to the drawing tables. We went right back, start with a clean slate and test all the assumptions. 
That includes repeating tests. And in her case, it was the repeat spinal tap that gave me the most powerful clue. The clue was a high level of a type of white blood cell, an eosinophil, that indicated a, you guessed it, parasitic worm infection. In Lois's case, it was angiostrongulus, or rat lungworm. It's known as rat lungworm because that's where the parasite develops in the lungs of rats. But the medical term is angiostrongulus and there's lots of different subspecies, but the one particularly for the purpose of this conversation we'll be focusing on is angiostrongulus cantonensis, which can cause brain infections. This is Dr Angie Burkhout, a paediatric infectious disease physician at the Queensland Children's Hospital. Yep, paediatric. Little kids especially are known for putting all sorts of things in their mouths. Humans are accidental hosts, so it develops in the lungs of rats and then the rats excrete it in their faeces. And then you have slugs that are the intermediate hosts. And then unfortunately, humans accidentally ingest the slugs. There have been cases where young boys have eaten a slug for a death. Or the other most common part is through unwashed vegetables or fruit. So basically, once a human ingests it, it can travel to the brain and it can't complete its life cycle cycle in a human and so it dies and it's when it dies it degenerates and it causes a lot of inflammation which is what actually causes us to be unwell with the brain infection. In Lois's case she's a keen gardener who grew a lot of her own salad greens. She and Dr Chowdhury think the most likely explanation is that she accidentally ate a tiny slug or even part of its trail that contained the rat lungworm eggs that led to her infection. The takeaway from both Lois's story and the case of the woman treated in Canberra, wash your fruit and veg thoroughly. You know, it's funny, I was just watering yesterday and I was looking at the lettuce and I go, oh gosh, got to make sure we wash those so carefully now. Even when we go out for lunch or whatever, I won't order a salad. I just think, ah, what if something crawled over this that didn't get washed off? So we've got a specialised type of worm that's adapted to pythons and one that's adapted to rats. In both these cases, the human that got infected was an accidental host. But of course, we know there are parasitic worms that infect humans too. How far back does this relationship go? Some of them have been with humans for millennia. So we're talking a very, very long time and they are uniquely adapted to living within the human body. This is Dr. Paul Jackerman. He's an immunologist at James Cook University who's very interested in these human-specific worms. He wonders if our modern scorched-earth policy about worm infections might not be the right idea. These parasites in particular the intestinal worms that I work on, have basically evolved with humans and other mammals within us. And they've really evolved alongside our immune system. Our immune system has evolved to kind of tolerate or interact with these worms. And the worms have basically had an arms race about trying to evolve alongside the immune system. They're really critical for immune and metabolic health. But what's happened in the last couple of decades is that we've sort of rid ourselves of these worms. A lot of people in places like Australia with improved sanitation or deworming medication, we don't have these worms in us anymore. And this has suggested that, you know, you're removing something which is really important for shaping your immune system. 
And therefore, your immune system may then kind of become out of balance and start to react to other things. And that's where we think that the benefits may be for parasitic worms is because we're starting to see a rise in these autoimmune allergic diseases in places like Australia, metabolic diseases. There's a thought that some of that might be because we've removed some of the protective benefits of parasitic worms. So Paul's been studying this by intentionally infecting humans with hookworms. Two of those humans were Jackie and Samantha. Of all the places to find it, it was on the back of a toilet door. I was at the (laughs) cinema. I noticed the poster on the back of the toilet door just outlining the call for participants. You know, I ticked all the boxes to be involved, so was included. Yeah, I was more curious than anything else about how it would go. We went into the JCU offices in their CANS CBD, did all the usual checks, bloods, questionnaire. You were called back in for the actual, it may or may not be the infection. They put a bit of liquid on a bandage and put that bandage on the skin of my forearm and that was it. I got infected with hookworm to see what would happen. They basically just sort of dropped a little drop of something on my skin and afterwards I did feel some intestinal discomfort slightly, not massively, but there was something. So I was like, oh, maybe I am in one of the group with the actual worms. I truly didn't know whether I would actually be getting worms or whether I would just be getting, you know, placebo. We just went with what we were told. And to be honest, like there's been no negative side effects whatsoever. I've never known the parasites were in my gut. And I just hope that that can sort of be conveyed to people to encourage them to get on board with this research. If this is to get bigger, it does require more participants. I've always wanted to be part of a scientific trial. It's just a nerdy thing on my bucket list. What about when you tell people about what you've done? As I said, I'm such a science nerd. I'm like, guess what? I've got worms. Both Jackie and Samantha had improvements in their blood scores including their insulin sensitivity, an important marker for your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. You know, it's quite likely that the same time all of this is happening over a three-year period that these gradual changes have happened so slowly that I come out at the end of it going, well, yeah, I feel great, but it's not like my life has changed. I didn't really notice anything at all other than what I could see in um, my blood results at the end of the trial. So there was an improvement in how much resistance there is to insulin, so too much resistance to insulin being the bad thing. So basically I became less resistant to insulin over time, which is a good thing. (laughs) There is a reason we thought of worm infections as being a bad thing, though. Heavy worm infections, even with worms humans have been living with for millennia, can cause things like gut problems, fatigue and anemia. But our research has shown in well-nourished people who live in regions like Australia, we've been able to do clinical trials with these worms, uh, low doses of worms. And that's where we start to see the more subtle protective benefits where people aren't getting the negative aspects because they haven't got hundreds or thousands of these worms on board. It might be that research like Paul Jackman's uncovers a pathway that could be treated with a drug rather than a worm. But it's not out of the question that at some stage in the coming years, your doctor might prescribe you a dose of hookworms to treat your autoimmune disease or diabetes. 
in some ways are quite a new frontier of medicine. You know, that we've seen, you know, advances in the exploiting the microbiome. So the small bacteria and the probiotics, et cetera, and developing cocktails of bacteria for treating human disease. And that's sort of starting to get legs now. People are sort of seeing legitimacy behind that. There's been similar approaches with leeches and maggots, for example. People never would have thought you'd be able to kind of use these kind of natural organisms to treat diseases. And we think that maybe the, the recent research going on around the world at the moment is sort of highlighting that, you know, there might be potential for exploiting the beneficial effects of worms and other parasites for treating diseases. At the end of Paul Jackman's recent clinical trial, the participants were offered deworming. Jackie and Samantha declined. So do you know if they're still there? As far as I know, they are, yeah. No, I still have the worms now. When I thought I had one, I'd already named it. You know, it is Dr (laughs) Worm. (laughs) That is hookworm study participants Jackie and Samantha finishing us off there. Yeah, I'm glad they were finding that funny. It sort of certainly put me off my bun. <laughs> I think you know what we should do? We should you know, get people to write in the revolting stories and just occasionally we might tell them. Oh, yes. Please email us healthreport at abc.net.au if you have a parasite or another kind of story that you think the world needs to know about. But Norman, it's time for you to talk about something hopefully a little more relatable. Yes, indeed. General practitioners can have an enormous effect on unhealthy behaviours. Just a short conversation about smoking or alcohol can prompt people to seek support for change. But with obesity and weight in general, anecdotally, GPs are nervous about bringing up the issue of weight. With body shaming, stigma and body image issues dominating the media, they feel a bit stymied about approaching this important risk factor. There's also some evidence that people who are overweight or obese avoid going to the doctor because they fear what they perceive as negativity. Helping doctors to talk about weight is the research interest of Associate Professor Gemma Sharp, who heads the Body Image and Eating Disorders Research Group at Monash University and Alfred Health. Welcome to The Health Report. Thanks so much for having me. So what are the, you know, this is clearly stigma and it works both ways for underweight and overweight, but what are the health effects of this stigma? So as you were saying before, it basically means that people will tend to avoid seeking treatment when they might really need it, but also when they come and get treatment, they may not be correctly diagnosed. And I I think also... What do you mean um, by that? Yeah, so in... um, I sure can. Uh, so, so when we were discussing this with our um, some of our patients, uh, they were saying this was a person in a larger body who was having knee issues, and for example, she could have been screened for arthritis or gout, um, but instead was just told to lose weight. So, I think there can be assumptions made by the health practitioner on the basis of someone's size. I mean, what was promoted for a while was that everybody should be weighed before their. Um, by the practice nurse before their consultation, at the same time as the blood pressure and the pulse are taken. And that's done less and less, if indeed it was ever done much at all. Yes, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to weigh patients and have discussions about weight. I think it's just the way in which it's done. And as you're saying there, is taken together with blood pressure and other um, critical measurements, that makes it more of a holistic approach rather than the focus on just weight. 
What's your research telling you about the way it's raised at the moment, if indeed it is at all? Mm, you're absolutely right saying if it's raised at all, that seems to be a bit of an issue. Um, people being worried that they'll be accused of body shaming. Um, when it is raised, sometimes it is just the classic, uh, you must diet and exercise more, which we know does have limited effectiveness. Uh, whereas the, the holistic approach, uh, looking at people's overall health with weight being part of that seems to be um, more the, I suppose, the minority. And also um, discussions around weight not being people's fault, not blaming them for their weight. That's another strategy that should be utilised more. There is evidence from tobacco and alcohol that people kind of want their doctor to raise it and mm. are almost disappointed if they don't because, but they're afraid to bring it up as, a, as an issue. Is it the same with weight or they're fearing their doctor bringing it up? I think it, it can be both ways. I know some some of the people we've chatted with definitely do want it to be raised just in a in a sensitive way. But other people uh, are saying things like, well, I'm here for an ear infection. I don't want to have a discussion about weight, which has nothing to do with my ear infection seemingly. But I think if it's part of routine care, part of taking blood pressure, et cetera, then those conversations become normalised and are less stigmatising. So play it out for me. Have you got the perfect conversation here? Do <laughs> well, Dr. we're still working. Dr. Sharp, <laughs> Professor Sharp, I've come to see, you know, how do you bring it up with me? My fat tummy. I probably wouldn't say fat tummy, first up. Right, but I say it for myself. You know, I stigmatise myself. <laughs> sure, but, and, sure, I shouldn't, exactly. and, I shouldn't have, and I shouldn't have said that, but carry on. Your internalised weight bias, we can work on that for sure. Um, I think it's, obviously, I, I'm asking you why you're there and probably you're going to mention things that, as the health professional, I'm thinking, ah, these are possibly weight-related. And I think I would be saying that, but I would also say, because I'm looking at your whole, your overall health, your whole care. And I think it's not just one conversation. I think managing weight is a series of conversations. And so maybe we just broach the topic in that first appointment and then ask the person to come back to see the practice nurse or, or myself again to have a longer conversation about it. So the person has time to think about it, let it settle in. This is particularly age-specific, and I said at the beginning, it's not just overweight, mm -hmm. it's also underweight. And in a, exactly. Particularly in a younger woman, but increasingly in younger men too. And how do you bring that up? Because that actually can be more immediately life-threatening. Absolutely. And I think it's it's the same kind of conversation. Again, it's looking at overall health and saying, I, I am concerned about the size of your body. Are you getting adequate nutrition? How is it impacting your life overall? Uh, are, there are ways we can assist you with this. Obviously, screening for eating disorders, if, uh, if that seems appropriate to the person's presentation. One of the problems is, that, is the lack of interventions. You can say with smoking with confidence, mm. Here's yes. the way you quit smoking. You can take a nicotine replacement. Um, with alcohol, there's well-recognised ways that you can cut back and get help. Mm -hmm. But there aren't mm -hmm. great interventions either for eating disorders, well, eating disorders that cause underweight, or losing weight in a sustainable way. So some GPs might be saying to themselves, why would I bother? 
I completely appreciate that. And I think we do need to, and, and obviously we can be eating disorders in larger bodies as well. So both ends of the spectrum, we do need to get a, a stronger eating disorder workforce so that um, health practitioners know where, the, where there is someone to uh, refer to. I do think in terms of weight loss, we do have um, pharmacological therapies coming through like semaglutide, which could be discussed. There's also bariatric surgery. So there are some options, but I I agree you could absolutely want to avoid it because you're concerned about ongoing care. And I, again, I think GPs um, need to be upskilled further, particularly in the provision of eating disorder care. I, I do completely empathise that GPs have a lot on their plates, though. They have a lot to manage. But it's not necessarily easy bringing it up with an adolescent. No, not at all. And I think, again, that requires specialist training versus adults. I mean, even um, as a clinical psychologist, I don't have the same eating disorder conversations with adults as I do with adolescents. Now, you've got a public lecture on this this week. I do. I'm very excited. Thank you for raising it. It's on the 7th of September. For those people in Melbourne, it'll be at the Alfred Hospital, but it's also via Zoom and it's from 5.30pm. And we'll have a link to that on the Health Sports website. Gemma, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Associate Professor Gemma Sharp, who heads the Body Image and Eating Disorders Research Group at Monash University and Alfred Health. And that's the health report for this week. It is indeed. We'll see you again next week. Bye till then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.